It is a pleasure to be up the front and just hear those voices lifted up. So give your same energy now as we continue with the study of His Word. Back when my dad was still alive, and I shared with most of you who've known me for the seven plus years, my dad was uh, my earthly hero, so to speak, had a great relationship with him, best friend type stuff, best man in my wedding. But my dad and I loved to mess with each other. I'm talking about just kind of get at each other. And as I became a SWAT operator and and, and kind of bypassed my dad, like in size and even in some strength. I was always kind of messing with him and he with me. You know, I'd kind of bump into him. And if we were lined up in the kitchen getting food, I would step in front of him and get my food first. I mean, it was just always something like that. Uh, we loved to pick on each other. But my dad would always say this to me. He would show me his fist. He said, boy, I'm about to put something on your head that Ajax won't take off. Y'all remember the old Ajax, right? The old Ajax would take like paint off of a car. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? So, so if Ajax won't take it off, it's really serious. And what he was referring to, obviously, was the knot he was going to put on my head. And I share that with you because Paul is going to share a similar story, not about knots on the head, but he's going to talk about his daddy and his spiritual daddy in particular. And what he is sharing with the Jews in this synagogue in Antioch, Pisidian, where they have now made their way in Paul's first missionary journey with John, Mark, and Barnabas, he starts talking about something Jesus did and can do that the law could not. Now remember, this was their strategy. We're going to show up and we're going to go to every synagogue we can because every Jew we talk to knows the Old Testament. They know Old Testament prophecy about Messiah. They know the law. And so if I can somehow link Jesus to the prophecies about Messiah, if I can link Jesus and His work on the cross to what the law was trying to do, we've got an audience. Well, as you know, the Jews were an audience, but not too long because they would start stoning him shortly after he would begin this type of teaching because this flew in the face of what they were thinking there's no possible way a good messiah a worthy messiah would allow himself to die on the cross and that's exactly what jesus did but what paul tries to explain was why jesus did that in church what we learned today is a simple thought you know this but we need to be reminded of this over and over that jesus provides a forgiveness that the following of the law or the obeying of the law cannot remember God never, he never created the law, gave the law as a way for man to be right with God. God gave the law to give a parameter of behavior that reflects that we are right with God. The law doesn't make us right with God. We keep the law because we are right with God. And the problem was the Jews reversed that. The Jews got to the point that they were almost worshiping the law and not the God who gave it because they felt like if I keep all these prescriptions and then I put myself in right standing with God, and that was never the case. And so we want to talk about something that Ajax won't take off. And it's not a knot on your head. It is the actual penalty and the guilt of sin. And what we want to add to that then is, is what is it then that can take away the guilt of sin? What is it that can take away your penalty of sin? And most of you know it. However, there may be some that do not. But for those of you who do know it, then what do you do about it other than just go to heaven? See, I'm convinced that in the American church, Christians are almost content with just making it to heaven. And yet we should never be content with just making it to heaven. We should be contented only by taking other people with us. So what is it we do about this truth that Jesus is that act of forgiveness, that source of forgiveness that even the incredible law given to the Jews cannot accomplish? So let's study that truth together this morning. Pray with me as we get our hearts ready to study this gospel message. Father, we love you and we thank you that Jesus is forgiveness. He is not just the source. Jesus is forgiveness. But Father, we also thank you for the law. Lord, the law was always just a reflection of who you are. It wasn't just a boundary for behavior. It wasn't a foundational truth. 
just for how we're supposed to act. Father, the law actually reflects your moral nature and quality. So by looking and studying law, Father, we see more of who you are. We see an in-depth glance at the morality that you possess. And so, Father, thank you for law. But Lord, oh, we praise you that you went beyond the law and your grace and your mercy and you gave us Jesus in addition to that. So, Father, give us wisdom today to understand the role Jesus actually played. As the Apostle Paul in the words of Luke here, kind of goes through this brief Jewish history leading us through stories of Saul and David, but Father, ultimately landing on this person of Jesus, but not just the person of Jesus, the role of Jesus as Savior. Father, give us wisdom to understand. Give us wisdom to hear. And Lord, I pray now before I ever start to teach that if there's a person here that does not know You personally as Lord and Savior, Father, that You would use these inspired words, not mine, but these inspired words that we're going to read, that you would lead somebody into your kingdom this very day. May your church never be content until we've done everything within our power to bring alongside us into heaven as many people as we possibly can. Give us that wisdom. That is the wisdom that is life-transforming and life-changing. Thank you for this gift. We applaud you for it in Christ Jesus' name. And all of God's church said, Amen. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Look at the screen real quick. Verses 13 down through 21, I'm going to ask you to read at a later time. I'm just going to summarize those for you real, real, real quickly just to get us to the bulk of our text. Now, remember last week what we started looking at was this first missionary journey. And so you've got from Jerusalem the laying on of hands, and we've set apart Paul now. They don't call him Saul any longer. He's Paul. He's got Barnabas with him. They take John Mark. John Mark is going to bail out on the trip here in just a minute. We'll talk about that. And so they go up to Seleucia. That is just out, <clears throat> outside of Antioch. They cross over to Salamis, which is the far uh, eastern side of Cyprus. They cross all the way over Cyprus to Paphos. That's where we left off last week. So here's where this text picks up in verse 13. They travel across the other part of the Mediterranean Sea to Perga. Now they've made it all the way up to Pisidian Antioch. They are now about 600 miles from home. This is a long, long way from home. So they are not around any familiar faces. They're not around any friendlies. They don't know these guys. They may have heard rumors about who Paul is, but they don't know anything else. And so they do what they've always done. They walk into a synagogue. They happen to catch it on the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath was at 6 p.m. on Friday until 6 p.m. on Saturday. So at some point on Saturday, they've walked up into a synagogue remembering Pharisaical law. Pharisaical law said that you couldn't travel but, but about three and a half miles one direction to go worship at the temple. So they want to worship on the Sabbath, but they can't go to the temple on the Sabbath because it would be considered work, and thus you've sinned trying to make it to worship. Aren't you glad God's a God of grace? You actually drove here this morning. It's okay. And, and so, so that's why these folks would meet then at the synagogue as opposed to traveling the 600 miles to Jerusalem. Plus, think about it, 600 miles every week would be pretty difficult. So they've gathered there at the synagogue. You've got a lead rabbi. The lead rabbi would always read from the Law and the Prophets. That was standard for any Sabbath synagogue gathering. Once he is finished, he looks around the room for guest teachers. Remember, this is what Jesus did all the time. Jesus taught as a guest teacher very often in the synagogue. We see this happening quite often. And so he looks around the room, and there's this dude named Paul, and there's a guy named Barnabas, and they've got a third with them, John Mark. In fact, at this point when they made it to Pisidian Antioch, John Mark's already gone home. Yeah, he made it as far as Perga. Something came up and happened. The Bible doesn't tell us. We do know that Paul gets pretty aggravated about it later on. But John Mark has bailed. So you got two guys sitting in the synagogue, and the lead rabbi looks around the room and goes, Hey, sirs, 
do you have anything to add to the law and the prophets? Well, you know, that's like putting cheese in front of a mouse's nose. You ask Paul, does he want to talk? Have y'all, have y'all read the New Testament? Paul wants to talk. And so Paul gets up, and what Paul starts to do is he starts out with this guy. He, he's going to land on this guy, not Goliath, but the other guy. See, anytime I show you a picture, even folks who don't go to church know who this is. They know this is David and Goliath. Well, this is where Paul is headed in his story. So he gives a real brief history of, of the Israelites. He, he talks about calling, and he gets through Saul, and Saul is about to be removed for this guy right here who you know is David. And so from David, he's got a story to tell. So that's where we're going to pick up now. So look in your text at verse 22. This is where Paul picks up in his story about David. After removing him, now not David, but Saul. Remember how the story goes. It's chronological. Saul has been picked. And so now he's removed Saul. So notice what it says. After he, in reference to God, removed Saul. God intentionally took Saul off the scene. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. Notice what else he did. He raised up David. The word raised is eiro in Greek, eiro, and it means cause to be. David didn't become king on his own. Y'all remember the story, right? You know, we got Samuel shows up, and Samuel approaches Jesse. Jesse, where's your boy? And he starts going through them all. He's going through everything he thinks that, that Jesse has, and Samuel's kind of like, ain't none of them. I mean, really, he's confused. He's like, you got to be kidding me. It's not one of these guys. What's going on? You don't, you don't have any other sons, and Jesse's really confused. He's like, wait, well. Um, Dave, David's out there with the sheep. Can't be him, but he's out there with the sheep. And of course, Samuel goes out, and who is it? it? It is David. And this word raised up, caused to be, this again, is illustrating in Luke's writing. Remember, Luke is a doctor. He's very detail-oriented. He wants you to grasp from the very beginning, from the beginning of Paul's story to the end, this is actually a story about God. This is not about David. This is not about even the line of David. This is about God. God's sovereignty, God removed Saul, God picked Israel, God has now picked David because from the line of David is going to come this Messiah. He knows they know those prophecies and so he's starting with history. He raised up David as their king and testified about him, I have found David the son of Jesse to be a man after my own heart. You know, church, I've often wondered what that means. Like I've read about David. Y'all do know David, yes, did slay Goliath, but David was also the guy that actually had an affair with Bathsheba, had a child out of wedlock, and actually had her husband murdered. So I've often wondered, well, what does it mean? What does God mean when he says David was a man after his own heart? Because David was clearly flawed, just like all the rest of us. Well, then actually, believe it or not, Luke answers this for us. Who will carry out my will. The word will is thelema in Greek, and that means my desire or my purpose. So here's what he's saying. Here's what made David a man after his heart. His uttermost desire was to carry out the will of God. Now, did he do it perfectly all the time? No. He messed up quite often. We, we see that happen. Yet his innermost desire was to do what? Was to carry out the very purpose of God that God had for him. Not what he had for himself. He wanted to carry out the purpose God had for him. He didn't want to carry out his individual will he would always gravitate back to God's will for him. And so when you see God saying, this was a man after my own heart, this is something you and I should aspire to. I want to be a man after the very heart of God. How do you become a man or a woman after the heart of God? I want to put as my top priority the very desire of God for me. That, that's all it means. It's not complicated. It's not a deep theological thought. It is that the greatest desire of your heart is what God wants for you, not what you want for you. That's what it means. And David was that person. 
David was special, but Paul's going to transcend to the more special person. Verse 23, from this man's descendant, so from David, as he promised, God brought to Israel the Savior Jesus. Now notice, Luke is giving us this message. I'm not sure if it's edited so it's a little shorter than what the actual message was, but if it was this short, how long did it take Paul to go from, I'm talking to Jesus about this short, right? So so you know immediately there is some fire, some attention, some aggravation in the room because the Jews to this day still do not accept that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. So immediately he gets to the point. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets straight to the idea about Jesus. Before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now, as John was completing his mission, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not the one, but one is coming after me, and I am not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. See, church, this language, even though for me and you, we know this is New Testament, what those Jewish listeners would have understood was Paul was referring to the spirit of Elijah. Remember, Elijah was supposed to come and proclaim the coming of Messiah. What did Jesus say about John the Baptist? John had come in the spirit of Elijah. He wasn't possessed by Elijah. He came in the spirit, meaning the same function. John is fulfilling the function of the prophet Elijah. Elijah was supposed to come and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. John is doing that. John has fulfilled it. Those Jewish writers know exactly what Paul is saying because he's just proclaimed Jesus as Savior. He's just proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. And then when he mentions John, who they know got his head lopped off because he was proclaiming the Messiah, and he he confronted a king about his marriage being messed up. And, And so they know this character. They understand who John is, and they're like, now wait a minute. Dude, you're saying John is Elijah? So, so right now, in case you're wondering, in the synagogue where they're at, at Antioch, Pisidia, it is hot. I mean, it's getting real hot and getting hotter by the moment. Paul is really stirring up this hornet's nest as he's talking about Jesus. He continues, brothers and sisters, all right, so let me take them to a point of aggravation and then let me relate to them. Brothers and sisters is a very familiar term. Adelphos is where we get Philadelphia. It's like brotherly love. So so he's trying to relate to them as fellow Jews. Remember, what is his background? He's Jewish. He's now a Christian, but his background is Jewish. And so he's trying to settle things back down because he wants them to hear the teaching, not get lost in their emotion. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race. Man, he goes back to the, the progenitor of all the Jewish nation. He goes all the way back to Abraham. And those among you who fear God, it is to us that this word of salvation has been sent. All right, so he's trying to lower down emotion, and he says, what a great position of privilege. This word of Jesus has been given to you. It's not been given to the Gentiles. This word of Jesus, the Messiah, just like prophesied, God is so gracious, y'all, he's given us a gift. And and so he's trying to get the emotions back down and get it replaced with excitement. He's trying to relate to them. He's trying to act as though he's one of them. And he is by his birth, not now by his spiritual status. Verse 27, since the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning them. All right, so here's what Paul does. I'm going to try to lower your emotions. I'm going to try to connect with you, and then I'm going to take my gloves off and punch you right in your mouth. Y'all notice that's what he just did, right? He said, all of your people did not recognize the word of the prophets. Who is he talking about? Uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Who are the most educated people in the Jewish world? 
Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Who knew the prophecies better than anybody else? Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. And who did not recognize any of the prophecies? Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Boom! And you killed them. You didn't recognize the stuff you were teaching. You're teaching everybody else about it, and you didn't know it when it was in front of your face. And you condemned him. Now, we've, we've got them really elevated. We've calmed them down for about 15 seconds, and then we just kick them in the mouth. And so now emotions are going to be pretty elevated again. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. The word ask, uh, eteo, eteo is not to ask. It means to beg or plead. He's trying to get across the gravity of the situation. That when Jesus was standing before Pilate, they weren't asking Pilate to make a decision. They were begging Pilate to make a decision. And what were they asking for? The death of Jesus. I'm going to release a murderer so a guy who's innocent can be hung on a cross. Makes perfect sense, right? Well, that's what Paul is saying. Makes perfect sense. You had the prophecies and the law, and you hung the guy on a cross. You know, and so again, boy, these emotions are starting to elevate. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. You know, in English, we would miss this, but the word written is the word grapho. The word graphi is the noun form of that, which means scripture. Anytime you see graphi in the New Testament, it means scripture. Grapho means the writing of Scripture. So here's what he just did. He just tied the death of Jesus and his condemnation into the Old Testament prophecies. So, so by saying one sentence, he just said, when they killed Jesus, that was the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Again, can you all imagine the tempers are starting to flare? We're starting to tear our clothes and start to put ash on top of our head, and we're picking up the rocks. We're, getting, we're about to get busy here, right? And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us. Their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's a mouthful. Uh, I want you to get this. By raising up Jesus, that's anistomy. Anistomy, it literally means cause to be alive again. You know, there's lots of stories out there that Jesus didn't really die. He kind of fainted from the pain and, and Probably most of us would have. Now, take that back. All of us would have died prior to the cross. They said that the injuries he underwent would have probably caused most to die from shock prior to the cross. And so there were stories that Jesus didn't really die, and that's why his body wasn't there uh, when it came Sunday morning is because somehow he crawled out or called off, which is medically impossible, but that's some of the lies. Notice what the text says. He wasn't just raised. He was caused to be alive again, meaning this, he actually died. There was no fainting. He actually died. He died a physical death. He was caused physically to be brought back to life. And, and notice something else here. This is confusing. Psalm 2-7 is confusing when Paul uses it in this light. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Um, was God the father, not the father of Jesus before the day of resurrection? Was he, not, was he not the father the whole time? Shake your head this way. Yes, he was. Yeah, he was. Psalms was written in a Hebrew culture. You need to understand Hebrew culture. All right, so, so Caleb is my only son. And, and I've got three kids, two great, beautiful girls, but if we were Hebrew in culture, he's the only one who could inherit what I have. And when I give him his birthright, and not before, now he's my son, he's my son the whole time, but when is he recognized in the Hebrew culture as my son? When I give him the birthright, and he is going to take over and start running all the affairs. And, and so this is what God is saying. Jesus was the Son of God throughout the entire existence of Jesus, which is how long? Forever. So he's always been God's Son. 
But after he was resurrected, you do know what happened after that, right? He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now I am handing you the running of the kingdom. The Bible says God is going to pass to Jesus the judgment of all things. He has been sustaining it. He created it. And now He's going to be given all authority. All all this is saying is there came an official moment where there was this handing off. I can't imagine what that would have been like in heaven. Can you imagine the angels and the celebration when Jesus took His official position? Now, my son. I mean, can you imagine? I just can't imagine how awesome that would have been in heaven. Jesus getting celebrated. Verse 34, as to his raising him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your holy one see decay. For David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. Why is he going through all this about decay? Well, remember, who is the greatest Israelite in all Israelite history? King David. King David is the greatest of all Israelites in Israelite history. Why? Because to the Jew, Jesus has not come. Jesus was not Messiah. Messiah has not arrived. And so what does Paul say? Hey, when David died, you know what happened to David? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. As great as David was, he turned back into dirt. What happened to Jesus? Oh, he got back up. And so all he's doing is pointing out a contrast. He's showing the greatness of Jesus in comparison even to the greatest of all the Israelites. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness, aphesis, aphesis, pardon, not just forgiveness, a pardon. You are actually guilty. There's no way to declare you not guilty, so I'm just going to pardon you. Meaning, I'm going to declare you forgiven when you're not forgiven. You're truly not. You've done nothing to earn it. There's nothing about you that would make me save you. I'm going to pardon you anyway. That's what you received to get into heaven. You've got a pardon. We were accepted when we did not deserve it. And so this is what he's proclaiming through Jesus. Forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified. D-K-O-O. You know, when I'm a kid, O-O was not a good thing, right? Now I'm an adult. And O-O is a great thing. Especially when it's attached to this word. D-K-O-O. It means to be put right with God. So when Jesus pardoned us, and we accepted this gift called faith, and we believed in His work on the cross, He then put us right with God. Notice, we weren't right with God. I could do nothing to make myself right with God. Jesus put me right with God. Just like God raised up David and removed Saul. He put us right. We, we did nothing in this process. We believed. That was our role. And we believed with the gift that was given to us. You do understand you would not believe without God asking on you, or acting upon you first with faith. Faith is a gift according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So, so you've been given a gift of faith. You take that gift of faith. So that's a gift already. All you do is exercise faith, and then Jesus did everything else. And so if anybody ever asks you, well, you know, salvation is equally dependent on us and God. Oh, no. Salvation does involve us. We get saved, but who does all the saving? God. It's directly dependent upon Him. And so this is all Paul is proclaiming. Everyone who believes is justified. That means, again, you're made right with someone. You're put in a proper position through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. Notice what he just said. It is only through Jesus bringing about the pardon that you're put right with God. The law of Moses can never put you right with God. Why? Because it was never about keeping rules. 
You do understand, I can tell my own children, and I've got three good ones, but I can give them rules, and they can keep the rules, but inside their heart still be just as rebellious as ever. But they're keeping the rules, whatever their motivation is, because they don't want to be smoked by their dad, or whatever, I mean, whatever the motivation may be. Or I don't want to get in trouble, or I want to be able to go out and do what I want to this weekend, so, so I'm going to keep the rules. See, keeping the rules can even be done by people who don't even love the rule maker. I mean, my, my kids will keep governmental rules and they don't even know who wrote them. So, so you understand it's not about the law. All Paul is saying is this, the law has never made you right. It was your belief in the one who gave you the law that made you right. You carried out the law because you were right with him. In Jesus, it's this. Jesus provided the pardon and when you believe upon the very work of Jesus, it is that that makes you right with God. Then you behave properly because you're already right with him. You don't behave properly to try to get right with him. It's not going to work. Jesus provided the forgiveness that obeying the law, the rules, whatever you want to call it, cannot obey. But church, here's the deal. You can finish out the rest of that text. Here's the deal. All around the world, I've been teaching world religion online now for a number of years through a college network. All around the world, world religion is teaching us all these different ways to earn what we think is best for us. That's all these world religions. They're, they're about doing things that are somehow making it right. Did you know the only one that's different? The only one that's different is the one that's about you. The only one that's different is Christianity. Watch this for a minute. This is an old parable that kind of explains it. A man fell in a hole. He fell in a hole and he couldn't get out. A traveler passed by. He told the man to meditate, to purify his mind, and when he reached Nirvana, all suffering would cease. The man did as he was told, but he remained in the hole. Another man appeared. He explained that the hole didn't exist, and neither, in fact, did the man. It was all an illusion. The man who did not exist was still stuck in the hole that was not there. Another visitor arrived. He instructed the man to perform good deeds to improve his karma, and though he would still die in the hole, he might be reincarnated as something magnificent. Another man looked down from above. He taught the man to pray five times a day facing east and to follow five important tenets. If he was faithful, one day, perhaps, the divine would set him free. The man prayed as best he could, but he was losing strength, and in the hole he remained. something different about him. 
He called down to the man in the hole and asked him if he wanted to be free. This man lowered himself into the earth, into the pit. He took hold of the man and dragged him into the light. And the man in the hole, who could not get himself out, was saved. So for each Passerby, what did they offer? Something for the man to do that would save himself. You do understand that's where all the world religions fall. Every one of them. It's about either escaping what is really not a reality. You're actually not here, by the way, in case you don't know. And none of this is real, even though it just got painted this past week. It's not real. And so if we'll imagine hard enough, we can maybe escape it. It's escapism. That's what we refer to it as. Or maybe if you go out this week and you do enough good deeds, then, you, then you'll never fall in a hole. Because, see, the hole represents all of humanity because you do know the man and the woman in the hole is actually you, right? And the one who actually performed the rescue asked a very simple question. Do you want to be free? So what is our role in accepting salvation? We simply say yes. That's it. We can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to get out of the hole. Keeping the law and offering all my animals, according to the writer of Hebrews, will not get it done. The only thing that will get it done is what? It's the work that was done on the cross. Notice what it said. That man lowered himself into the hole. What did Jesus do? He left the comforts of heaven, became one of us, experienced physical death, was put into a tomb, three days later got out, and here's all he's asking you is, do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? My challenge to you is this. Don't miss it. See, there's a lot of folks in this room, you get it. You do not. You have not missed it. You get it. You understand that you're counting on the work of Jesus. It is your belief in what He did as the atoning sacrifice for your sin. It was His pardon given to you that you will not be judged as you, but you will be looked upon by your Heavenly Father as belonging to Him. You do understand his righteousness, his right standing has been transmuted. All that means, that's a fancy term to say it's been transferred. Jesus took his right standing with God and said, for those of you who will exercise a yes answer to the question, do you want to be free? Boom, I stamp you with this. And so when you're standing there on judgment day, it is not you that God evaluates. Who does he evaluate? He evaluates his son, Christ Jesus, and he looks at you and he says, come on in, my good and faithful servant. What a great work you have done. Because what is he looking at? He's looking at the cross. Every other world religion requires you to do something to save yourself. You're somehow worthy and earning your salvation. And so again, many of you do get it. For those of you who do get it, I've got some things I want you to consider. Number one, if you get it, you need to be willing to share when given an opportunity. You, you do understand what we prayed in the very beginning. As a church, we should never be satisfied with the fact we're going to experience heaven. That should never be enough. You're like, Pastor, what is there greater than heaven? 
The only thing greater than heaven is carrying people with us, right? If it is the greatest thing in all of existence, if God is the greatest truth that's ever been spoken, then we have the responsibility when given any opportunity to share it. And here's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you necessarily taking a gospel track. Nothing wrong with that and sitting down with somebody. What I'm saying is, is you listening and being attuned to situations where you might be able to interject the Word of Jesus into it. The very name of Jesus. Like when you're talking with somebody whose marriage is falling apart, bring back into their thought process that even though they may not be able to fix their marriage, there is one who very well may be able to save their marriage. I've watched it happen. Y'all listen, I've sat with a couple and I told them if that couple was here, they would go, yes, he did. I sat with a couple and after they had met with me multiple times and gone to multiple sources of counseling, I looked at them and I said, you've got no chance. And they did not. They had no chance. The only thing that was going to rectify and save their marriage was if both of them found a way to submit to Christ. And they're still married, praise God, because they found a way to do that. But where they were, where they met with me that day, they had no chance. It was done. It was over. I've never advised anybody to get divorced, but I was looking at them going, hey, you might as well go ahead and get ready. It's coming because you're done. And because they submitted. So, so here's the thing. Be willing to share. Maybe it starts with your own kids, grandparents. Maybe, maybe it's you sharing with your grandkids. I've shared this with you before. Godliest woman I've ever known. My wife is getting close. The godliest woman I've ever known was my grandmother on my mother's side. She could turn every story into a story about Jesus. Everything we did, shucking corn, turned into a story about Jesus. I don't know how, but she did it. Picking peas and butter beans. I hated every minute of it, and she could turn it into a story about Jesus. Harvesting cotton in the fall. I mean, we're missing school. We're on tractors because weather's coming. She could turn it into a story about waiting for Jesus. A tornado blowing through northeast Mississippi, which is as common as water flowing. And she could turn it into a Jesus calm in the storm. I mean, it was just, it was constantly this. And at age 16, I'll never forget this, went to see her in the hospital, and she looked at me, she said, Honey, are you running from the calling of the Lord? 16 years old. I was running all right. I was chasing two things, footballs, baseballs, and girls. Three things. Okay, so. I was running, but I had no idea what she meant. Now I look back going, Oh my word, how did she know at age 16? Because she was this godly woman. She introduced Jesus into every topic. Listen, I'm not telling you you've got to take a Bible and beat somebody over the head, but your co-worker, your friends, the students that you're dealing with, uh, from, from our medical personnel all the way to our educators, find a way, find a way. Ask the Lord to help you. Find a way to introduce the topic of Jesus into conversation. The involvement of God, that what's happening to them is actually outside of their control. We think we control everything. We control nothing. I mean, did you read the text this morning? God did, God did, Jesus did, God did. That was the whole story. God's sovereignty. Number two, be familiar with the Old Testament, how it points to Jesus. You don't have to be an absolute Old Testament scholar, but listen, people love information. All the statistics we read this about millennials comes down to this. They love information. They do. They love information. They love to be challenged. They're going to challenge you. Well, why is it the Jews don't accept Jesus? You know, this is, you say it's the same Old Testament... Why is it the Jews do not accept Jesus? Well, here's what you need to do. Get into the Gospel of Matthew, and every place where Matthew says, this fulfilled, this happened, so this will be fulfilled, go back and look up those Old Testament passages. Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospel Gospels. It is the most Jewish. And so when you go back and look at it, Matthew says more than any other writer in the New Testament, Jesus did this, so this would be fulfilled. You need to know those passages. Not memorize them, but at least know where they are. 
So you are familiar enough with the Old Testament to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament aren't two separate books, they're one. It's one Bible. And the Old Testament simply points to the Jesus of the New. The law was given as a foreshadowing of what was going to be stamped on our heart when the Holy Spirit moved in. So here's a revelation of God to His people given to the law of Moses and in the law of Moses. Here's that same law and I'm going to put it inside you in the Holy Spirit. My same revelation of myself, I just give it to you. But you need to be able to explain those things and not say, hey, let me call my pastor. I don't mind if you call me. I don't mind if you email me. But you need to be able to defend our thoughts and our beliefs about Christ. Number three, accept the historical evidence of Jesus pre- and post-resurrection. Um, one of the things that I read over today, and I, I just kind of read through it, I didn't pause. What Paul said was Jesus after resurrection appeared to those who had come with him, had come along with him, meaning this, followers. We have no evidence in Scripture that Jesus appeared post-resurrection to non-believers. It, it says that he appeared. Every time you see it written, Paul says he appeared to me and at least 500 others, but he was referencing those who were believers. And, and so we have all types of historical data about Jesus prior to his death. Literally, Josephus wrote about him. Uh, the Muslims understand, Indian faith understands who Jesus is as far as a prophet. But post-resurrection, the only people that we know saw him or experienced him physically were believers. And, and so understand this. Understand there is a pre- and post-resurrection history. All people prior to... And then just those who know Him personally, um, you do know that's going to change. When Jesus comes back, guess who will get to experience Him? Everybody. And you do understand the dead are resurrected for one of two purposes. Those who are believing dead are resurrected to experience heaven. Those who are unbelieving dead are resurrected to be condemned to hell. And so everybody's going to know Him. But He only appeared to those like us. And then number four, accept that forgiveness of sins, uh, a feces, Pardon, you're pardoned for sin. So, so even though you weren't forgivable, you were still pardoned. And justification, you were put right with, are only available through Christ Jesus. You do know Christianity takes, we take the hit all the time. We're the most exclusive religion, and, and they don't mean it in a good way. They mean we exclude other people. Y'all are the most exclusive. You say that your religion is the only way to heaven, to paradise, to eternal life. Let me clarify that for you. Are we the ones who say that our religion is the only way to paradise or heaven? No. Who actually said it? The God that I say is God. And if He's a God worth His salt, I'm going to take Him at His word. And if He says there is only one way to the Father, and it is through me, I make no apologies for what He says. I just simply teach it. We try not to be haughty about it. We try not to be judgmental or condemning about it. However, at the same time, we don't bat an eye when somebody goes, y'all are just exclusivists, you're prideful, you're haughty. I'm like, no, I'm just a follower. And the one that I'm following said this truth, and it's up to me to accept or reject that truth, and I believe it. I accept it. So here's what I want you to do. Here's what we're going to do during our, our response time, our processing time. This morning, if you're here, and you say, Justin, listen, I, I'm listening to you and I like the way you've presented this, you've given me some good things to think about, I still don't know, I still don't know where I stand and whether or not Jesus is this real Son of God. That Jesus is, is really the only way to a life after this, if there is a life after this. I really don't know that I have all those answers. If that is you today, look up here real quick, if that is you, 
If you've got those questions, all I'm asking you to do is give us a chance to help you come up with some answers. That's it. I will not ask you today to raise your hand, to commit to anything, to give any money, to sign a card. We won't ask you for any of that. Here's what I will ask of you. If you're willing to let us help you answer some questions you may have, I've got some folks who are are well-trained. They're prepped for this moment. They're ready for you, even though they don't even know who you are. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do in just a minute. I'm going to have everybody in this room stand up, and they're going to pray. And we typically pray with our heads down, our eyes closed. We typically bow before the Lord. So, so they're going to be in that moment of prayer. While they're in that moment of prayer, if you've got those questions you want to answer, do me this big favor. Give us a chance to help you. Here's how we do that. Walk straight over here to these doors. It says exit. That's what you're going to do. But not by yourself. We're going to have somebody there with you, and they're going to take you back to our fellowship hall where it's more private. And you're going to have a chance to sit down one-on-one or with a couple of people and they're going to say, hey, you know, what is it that Justin said that you've got questions about? Would you be willing to let me read this to you? And they've got some information they just want to share with you again. You have to make no commitment at all today. This is completely up to you. We just simply want to answer some questions if you have them. If that is you today, when I have you stand, don't hesitate, don't wait straight to those doors, and those folks will be waiting for you. However, a lot of you in this room are just like me. You know you're a Christ follower. You know that part is sealed for you. Here's some things I want you to process and maybe even confess. Number one, have you bypassed a chance this past week to have spoken about Jesus into the life of somebody? Is there a moment from this past week that you know for a fact in that moment I should have not lost my temper with my child, but I should have injected the very teachings of God to my child? Guilty as charged. Y'all do understand that's sharing the gospel. It may even be with somebody who's saved and you're still sharing the gospel. Why? Because we just keep talking Jesus. Or maybe there's somebody who does not know the Lord. You know they don't know the Lord. They are desperate. They're seeking answers. They're trying to find them in all the wrong places like Google.com. And you had a chance to speak into them. Maybe their marriage is in trouble. Their children aren't behaving properly. They're facing some type of physical issue. Financially, money's tight. There doesn't seem to be an end in sight. And you have a chance to speak into them by either helping them, but just sitting down with them, and you chose to bypass that. Y'all do understand, that is a sinful action. You not acting can also be just as much a sin as you acting improperly. And so maybe, maybe it's just a prayer of forgiveness. Lord, you know what? Tuesday, I missed that. Tuesday, I let my emotions run, and I did not handle that right. I had an opportunity to really share Jesus with somebody. And, I'm not, I, and I don't mean, listen, I don't mean necessarily you pray with them to receive Christ. I mean just sharing Jesus about how He is calm and how He is the, the, the order in the midst of the chaos and how He does care about their situation. Maybe that level of sharing. And so maybe if you missed that this week, you pray that the Lord would forgive you and present you another chance. Or maybe, maybe you're just asking just that. Hey, Lord, this week, you know what? I want a chance. But let me forewarn you on this. If you're sincere and you ask Him to give you an opportunity to share Jesus, maybe it's confronting somebody else over sin, maybe it's you confronting your own sin. You get it. You ask the Lord for a chance to share Jesus, guess what He's going to do? His answer is yes every time. So do not ask if you're not ready. But I'm challenging you as a church. We need to be asking that. Number two, be familiar with the Old Testament. Hey, this week, if you're not really sound on the Old Testament, at least go back to Matthew. 
and kind of start your own new study of that. And, and all I mean is this. Look for the number of times where Matthew wrote down, this happened so this would be fulfilled. Jesus said this in order to fulfill that. This happened so this was fulfilled. Because what it does is it takes you back to Old Testament text. So you, you can then say, hey man, Isaiah was actually talking about Jesus when he said this. The Psalms were actually talking about Jesus when it said this. So take a look at that. Number three, and this is where we close out. Really check your own self. And, and y'all listen, Paul told us to do this. He said, work out your salvation. Not work out. You're not working for it. You're working it out. You're exercising. Really check yourself on number three. Do you really, honestly, believe and I ask kids this, when parents bring them to my office and I have the parents sit with me, here's what I ask them every time. Have you ever seen Jesus? You know what I've got? This is what I have received every time. You've never seen Jesus. Well, if you've never seen Jesus, what, what, let me ask you, have you ever seen somebody raised from the dead? So why are you here? Because I believe in Jesus. What? I mean, literally, I try to talk them out of it. No kidding. I do not want to soft-serve salvation. I want them to know that they know that they know. And yet, here's what I come out with every time. Well, why do you believe that? Because the Bible says it's true. Y'all do know that's our answer too, right? Why do I believe Jesus is real? I have not seen Him. Y'all, we are in the empirical age. I can find proof of everything on YouTube. And if it's not there... Google has it. I mean, somebody's got it, right? There's a video of how to do it. Why do I believe it? Because the Bible says it's so. That's the only one I've got. The Bible says it's so. So, so be sure when we stand and pray in just a minute, you've got number three nailed down. You've got number three nailed down. And if you do, then I want you to take a look at points one and two, and I want you to see what you can do about that.